Hello, and welcome back. If you haven't listened to the first episode that I did on addiction, um, I would recommend just before jumping into this one uh, to, to check that one out. Although I think this will probably, at least I hope it kind of stands on its own um, and we will kind of brush over some of the stuff that was mentioned, but not in perhaps as much detail. But first, I would like to say Happy New Year to you all. Um, I hope you had a good a good celebration. If you did celebrate, I'm not sure whether you, I actually made it to 12 o'clock this year, which was kind of surprising because my usual bedtime recently is, you know, probably 9, 9.30ish, which is kind of boring, but um, it has suited me well. Now just trying to kind of get back into it. Uh, but I, I went away. I went to Coffin Bay, which was... Uh, I'd never been there before, and it was it was really nice. I saw some... We saw some photos before we went and just looked absolutely amazing. And we get into the very middle of the town and it was like, ah, you know, it's nice. It definitely had a very uh, casual and just sort of free sort of feel to it. There, there weren't a whole lot of people, obviously, compared to sort of a city environment. Um, but it didn't look like the photos until we went to a beach called Farm Beach and man that was I, I really really appreciated that so I hope whatever you did you enjoyed it and coming back into it I'm super excited even whilst I was away I was still thinking about you know what the next plan was going to be and trying to just kind of refine and prepare my thinking to kind of delve into podcasting a little bit more and then more specifically to continue on with uh, this addiction topic, which I'm finding kind of fascinating. So, just want to start today's episode with the use of the word addiction. So, addiction has had two uses currently, at least in the medical and and therapeutic community. is more of a more commonly a word used to indicate dysfunction or the absence of control towards you know particular kinds of pleasure etymolo uh I get this wrong all the time etymologically etymologically Fr- from the field of etymology there we go that's easier um which means you know the history or the origins of words addiction interestingly enough not sure if you're interested too but it comes from a latin word addicere i think is how you pronounce it which is probably probably wrong, um, <laughs> despite me learning Spanish, which is a Latin language, but regardless, um, which means to assign to, which would be things that are habitual and take your interest. So we, so, so for what it's worth, we can kind of recognize and remind ourselves that topics as complex um, as these, such as, you know, with addiction, can have multiple interpretations. It can be the uh, we can use it to indicate dysfunction or just things that kind of occupy our time and take our, our interest. But for this purpose, we're, we're delving more into the therapeutic or perhaps medical, maybe not so much medical, obviously psychological, but we do go into, we will go into uh, the some physiological, um, what would you call it, manifestations or just variables that are associated with addiction might be one way to say it. So I want to explore 
on that, I guess, I want to explore four crucial brain systems that are at play in addiction. So even more challenging though, I, I really want to try and do my best to make it interesting and hopefully to some degree memorable. So I'll do this, as you have already gathered, um, over a series rather than all at once because it's just, it's too much. And I'll mostly be reading from a, a script-like form to kind of help myself be precise and hopefully more fluent in the discussion considering that this is a, a segment is a solo solo bit of work so let's let's kind of delve into it so i mentioned four brain four crucial brain systems so these are the incentive motivation system the attachment reward system self-regulation system and the stress response system we won't go into all four of those today um, but we must keep in mind that these systems do not exist strictly for addiction, but instead are systems that have aided survival over generations and they just can happen to go astray in, in addiction. Um, so in this, we will learn about how it goes wrong and through that we aim to recognize for a more productive way of functioning. So to explore these further, it can be helpful to distinguish their neuroanatomical and neurofunctional basis, I, I guess might be one way of, of um, defining it. We could talk about the psychological structure and the phenomenological manifestations, which means what happens when, what does it feel like? Um, and what happens when these systems are healthy versus when they are uh, disrupted? Now, I had something that I wanted to say. Oh, yeah, just as as we've just kind of jumped in, I know that was a whole lot of different words and, and kind of, you know, we said uh, four different brain systems. And I said that we'll tackle them individually. At the moment, we're just kind of uh, delving into a bit of an introduction. So it's, it's not important to remember, you know, any of these kind of... Uh, any of this particular terminology. But if you're interested, then, of course, uh, write it down or, or do more research um, and, and share it with me. That would be awesome. So it will be helpful to analyze each of these aspects across all brain systems individually. Importantly, though, as I think I said before, we must recognize that these systems do not operate in isolation in the real world. So we should keep in mind the kind of holistic interaction that, that occurs in reality. Something else to keep in mind is that addiction does not occur in isolation or, or, or causation from the particular substance or gratifying behavior like, for example, gambling. So this is, is to say that there is an interaction between stress and coping mechanisms or, or lack thereof that leads one towards addictive habits. So doing some extra research and, and listening to a man named John Viveki, who I would absolutely um, recommend um, listening to, he's a cognitive scientist who has, he's got this 50 part lecture series on YouTube. It's called Awakening from the Meaning Crisis, um, which refers to, well, a crisis <laughs> that we find ourselves in today. So for example, Religious connection is going down, and this is not in all places of the world, but you know, particularly in the Western world. And things like, for example, sports affiliation 
um, I believe, is going up. And so I'm not saying that those two are directly related to each other or inversely related to each other, meaning that I'm not saying that, you know, as religious connection goes down, sports affiliation will always go up, but just that it's interesting to see how the role of identification of humans wanting to identify with something, something that provides a sense of community and a value structure can be a relatively flexible puzzle piece for for the human heart, so to speak. So nonetheless, John Viveki adds up, uh, adds on, sorry, to what Dr. Gaber Matei, who I mentioned in the last episode, talks about. And relating this to stress and coping, stress could kind of be defined as, I think he says this in the book, Dr. Dr. Matei, um, anything that exceeds the organism's ability to meet the needs of the environment. So he talks about it as this, as if uh, there is a stressor in the environment and then in the end that impacts our physiology, so our heart rate, hormone secretion, like adrenaline and, and cortisol. But in the middle, between the environment and the body reaction, is something like a psychological interpretation which is is looking at, well, what is the significance of the stressor? What does it mean? So, for example, this is like going on a roller coaster with a group of friends. The environmental stressor is the same. That's the ride, the roller coaster. The psychological interpretation may differ. So one person is thinking that you know losing control is fun while the other person completely hates it. Um, and this will actually, both of these interpretations will impact the levels of hormone and neurotransmitter secretion in, in the brain and body. John Viveki, he extends this to talk about how addiction becomes kind of a, a gravitational dance between options that are out in the world and the cognitive flexibility that individuals have. So, Cognitive, uh, sorry, cognitive flexibility are like options that we have in mind. So engaging with whatever it is that um, has an addictive quality to it for for the that individual, or there is an ad- addictive interaction. What happens is that engagement decreases the other options that there are in your mind of what what else you could do to occupy your time and to be um, enjoyable to some form, to, to some degree or another. And then by doing this, by decreasing the options that there are in mind, this also decreases the perceivable options that there are out in the world, which again, decreases the options in mind and so on. That's why I said gravitational dance. So in the extreme cases, there is no option or sense of agency. And that, that's where we're talking about with the, the more extreme forms um, of where addiction can kind, of, can kind of lead. So I appreciate those viewpoints because they really highlight the dynamic nature of addiction. It's, it's not just saying that it's just the substance that you know, makes someone addicted, which I think is something that I have written down um, perhaps to speak about on a later, a later episode because I do think it's, it's worth keeping in mind. So, I'll be exploring those four brain systems, incentive motivation, attachment reward, self-regulation, and the stress response system, and I'll be doing it individually to aid for better memory. 
I'll also be working through different levels of, analy of, of analysis that I mentioned above. Another strategy for memory, though, is to use self-reference of the items that you'd like to remember. So this means using information and constructing how this does or does not relate to yourself. Now, obviously, I'm not saying for anybody to, to diagnose himself with an addiction or somebody else with an addiction or even a former state that you've been in and calling that an addiction. I mean, maybe maybe that could be helpful to you in, in some way, but um, more important to just kind of recognize the signs and symptoms than it is to kind of to be labeling because sometimes it, it really just doesn't help. But regardless, we mentioned the self-reference as a way to, to aid memory. Um, so this means using information and constructing how this either does or does not relate to yourself. And this comes from work, this, this strategy, this comes from work by um, two individuals called Craig, Craig, these are the last names I believe, Craig and Lockhart, who were investigating the psychology of memory and in particular strategies that aid for better memory. I, as a kind of demonstration, I remember the name of the theory and of who discovered it because I came up with this um, random rhyme sequence that kind of that kind of does does a job. So we said, well, perhaps I didn't say it. So Craig and Lockhart, their memory model was called levels of processing. And we'll get into a bit of uh, what that means in a sec, but the kind of rhyme sequence that I, I came up with to remember it, it goes like this. Levels of processing in your face. It's not hard to see through the crake and Lockhart's. <laughs> I'm just le leaving a suspenseful pause because I'm just wondering what the re responses are. Um, but regardless, so taking that sentence for what it means is absolutely nothing. But for some reason... It's just stuck with me, so it's helped. So what levels of... Like I said, I was going to go into. If you're hanging with me, then I really appreciate this. Um, what levels of processing means is that information can be processed in either a shallow way or in a deep way. And what distinguishes the two is that deeper processing has you engaging more with the content, which seems pretty straightforward. So I, I just mentioned rhyming, um, and we mentioned self-reference. So... We're building these in to keep in mind some memory strategies that we can use whilst we're going through some of these other brain systems. Because, I, I, like I said, I think it can be really helpful um, to recognize signs and symptoms and to also just understanding how our brain works in particular situations. So we said what deeper level of processing is. Seems pretty straightforward, but what does it actually mean and what are some examples so a deep level of processing will have you engaging more with the meaning or the application of a memory item rather than processing its more obvious features, which, if you were doing that, would be a more shallower form of processing. So some examples for deep levels of processing include, as I said, meaning of memory items, the likability of the item, how much do you like it or not, the degree to which information is elaborated on, which is, you know, joining to other pieces of information like I'm doing now with this really long loop through addiction. 
and also to distinguish information such as uh, processing a memory item against its opposite. So, you know, distinguishing things. For shallower levels of processing, this includes things like counting the syllables or counting the frequency of a particular letter in a word. And we'll go into some examples in a moment. Um, so taking the word addiction into memory, if we were just going to try and memorize the word addiction, pretending that we'd never heard of it before, we could learn and think about what it means, which, if you listen to the last episode, means something that causes you know, the, the four um, criteria that we mentioned. So preoccupation slash compulsivity, impaired control of attention and action, persistent engagement over time despite negative consequences, and the final one that was crucial, dissatisfaction, irritability, or intense craving when the stimulus is not present. So we went through those. We could try remembering the word addiction by, 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 by that meaning, obviously, um, or of now that we know the meaning of the likability of the word. So how much do you like the word addiction? You know, a scale of zero to 10, that, that might be a way of, of helping remember it. Or the ability with which we think it relates to ourself, which again, I kind of added the little um, cautionary note, you know, not to push too hard um, into that just based off of, off of the things that we go through here. Both of these would be deeper levels of processing, like I said, and likely lead to, to better memory recall, which again is why I'm speaking about this. We could also think about what addiction relates to um, and, and is distinguished against. So I did this in the last episode by comparing addiction and OCD. So I was explaining how there are many similar features and also that crucial difference that we mentioned. And you can do that too as, as we continue going through. And then just to add the contrast between deeper and shallower levels of processing, on the shallow end, we could think about how many syllables form the word addiction or how many times the letter I features in the word. So these would all be different ways of trying to remember the word if we'd only recently come across it. Amusingly, though, something that kind of sits closer towards a shallower level of processing is apparently using rhyme. And I find this interesting because, as you'll remember, I used rhyme to remember the level of, of processing theory and the name of, of those discoverers, Craig and Lockhart. So what I mean by saying that is that I supposedly used a shallow and more ineffective... More ineffective? Can you say that? And a shallow and ineffective memory strategy to remember the theory for remembering, if that makes sense. I, I know that's confusing. But my point in saying that is that at the end of the day, you do have to just do what works for you to remember it. But just kind of giving a bit of a backstory into some different kind of approaches that you could use, or maybe you already use, and it kind of um, solidifies it a bit more for you, and, and you could continue doing that with what we explore together. So I've mentioned some memory strategies because, oh, well, I've mentioned those ones. I kind of uh, wanted to explore those. And I'm also curious, I'm not 100% sure of the answer, um, but I wonder whether using 
personification is helpful. So personification is the strategy of giving memory items their own sense of, of personality. So this differs from the self-reference technique that is part of that deeper level of processing that we mentioned. Because rather than relating the memory to yourself, your uh, sorry, the memory item, such as addiction, to yourself, you're uh, creating like a, a fictionalized other. So I mentioned this because the strategy of personification is what I'm going to attempt to use as we explore the brain structures related to addiction. I want to do this because it can... I know it can sound dry and perhaps boring to hear words like, for example, prefrontal cortex and ventral tegmental apparatus, you know, all those words repeated over and over again. So now that that is set, and I hope you're still with me, let's delve into one of the brain systems that I mentioned, starting with the incentive motivation system. So... We'll go through, as I said before, the neuroanatomical. So it's like what's its structure, or like the brain structure, um, or and neurofunctional. So how does how does the brain on a how do the different regions function together, or the neurons um, in which regions function? The psychological structure and phenomenological kind of the the experience of it. So starting with what are the primary neurotransmitters and, and slash receptors that are important in the incentive motivation system. And I'm sure, almost certain you would have heard of this one, and that is dopamine. So what do we know about it? People often think of it as kind of a feel-good molecule or a reward molecule. So what is its function? The function of dopamine is actually to initiate action towards a desired end. So dopamine climbs, levels of dopamine climb at the initiation, the beginning of a behavior towards a goal, and then it spikes at the moment of attaining the goal. After that, it drops rapidly, apparently. I haven't done the, the, uh, the studies for myself, but I have been looking at them. Therefore, dopamine concludes the ride at the attainment of a goal and thus plays the most important part of the as a role in seeking behavior. And this is really interesting because this feeling of, of seeking is associated with energy because the neurotransmitter, and we'll get into... Don't let this be confusing. The neurotransmitter epinephrine slash norepinephrine um, in the brain, which is also known as adrenaline or noradrenaline in the body. Um, so adrenaline is made from dopamine. So this makes sense. There's something that is responsible for motivation and seeking behavior, dopamine, would be closely linked to the chemical we all know to be present when we're in an energetically heightened state. So that's the adrenaline and the epinephrine. And, you know, I really like that because going back to the role of psychological interpretation of a stressor, we we're talking about John Viveki with his 
you know, what's going on out in the environment and then what's the physiological response and that there's like a middle point of a, of a psychological interpretation. So going back to that role of the psychological interpretation of a stressor, if we can feel adrenaline in our, in our bodily awareness, then we have a brief window to play with our interpretation. And now knowing that dopamine is so close to adrenaline, we can encourage ourselves by asking in, for example, asking in moments of stressful adrenaline, what type of goal could be pursued or, or achieved here? So utilizing that close connection between dopamine and adrenaline and recognizing the role of dopamine in goal-seeking behavior by asking that question of what can be achieved where where we're encouraging the dopamine, this incentive motivation system and dopamine to be... We're using a psychological interpretation to kind of, I don't want to say hijack our, our, our physiological responses, but to kind of, I don't know, to encourage it in some more, would you say pleasant, pleasant experiences or just perhaps more productive is maybe a better way of saying it. So I'll admit that this won't necessarily change the entire stressful experience, you know, where the walls fall down and you just keep striding. But what it may do is it may allow, and this is what I hope it does, it may allow you to notice where some of the doors are perhaps in the room and to kind of lock your attention towards what may be beyond. And that's that's that psychological structure of what we can do with the mind. And I've, I've, been, oh, I've been doing this... Um, I've been trying this even when I exercise, for example. I did two weeks at F45, and which I really enjoyed, actually. that It's it's quite intense, especially if you make that decision before you go in there, I'm giving this my all. But when you have those moments in exercise where you just feel like, I just want to quit here, that stress, you you like I just said, you get the window, a psychological window to go, okay, well, how am I going to view this? And asking things that are more geared towards goal attainment, you're you're going to change your experience in some um, enjoyable ways. So if you struggle in that moment of stress to think of what can be achieved, you can always fall back on perhaps the core value that I hold, you know, most central, which is to recognize and conduct myself as a learner. And I do this because it is just a fact that our minds and our bodies are learning all the time, reinforcing things that we would like to reinforce as well as things that we would not like to reinforce. So it's both a fact and a useful strategy to to reflect and enact yourself as a learner as a, as a way to kind of overcome adversity. And the, the dopamine system is definitely plays a role in that as well. So going back to the neuroanatomical kind of parts of the incentive motivation system, we've got the primary brain regions. So before we start with brain regions, I have to again preface that I'm creating fictional personalities. That's that personification that I mentioned earlier, based on what brain scans have tended to report about 
the functioning of each area. So I guess we're also doing um, neurofunctional kind of um, as well, linking that in. Obviously, they're associated. Again, though, one particular brain area can be involved in multiple different activities. And I'm narrowing it down to what I have found to be most relevant. So I'm not saying that this covers everything, but I, I do think, like I said, that it's relevant. So first brain region, we have the, its scientific name is the ventral tegmental apparatus. So we're going to call this Vita. And Vita is a passionate woman. You know, Vita, she, she's always around. She likes to, she really likes to sit in the middle. She's, so she's in the middle of the brain. And when Vita speaks, she tells you about her desires and her goals. And, you know, Vita's on the lookout for peak experiences. In a study on humans, one man was able to directly stimulate Vita's area, which I'm just realizing doesn't sound right. Um, no, but he was, this guy, he was able to directly stimulate this spot, the ventral tegmental apparatus um, in his midbrain, so much that the researchers eventually had to, to pull him off. Oh, that doesn't sound right either. But they, they had to, dis what I mean is they had to disconnect him from his phone call, let's say, with Vita after, you know, Vita was speaking, or they were speaking 1,500 words. So that is... He was pressing this stimulation button for peak experience 1,500 times, and this was over the course of an hour. So what was happening when he was chatting with Vita? Well, he was feeling like he was on the path to achieving something. And what does that mean neurochemically? What, what chemical do we know? So that's dopamine. Dopamine was present in very high amounts. So continuing on, Vita, you know, Vita loves dope, but, you know, Vita doesn't partake in this activity alone. Vita spends lots of time talking with her friend, Nene. So Nene's uh, brain name is, is technically Nucleus Accumbens is, is the name of it, which kind of sounds like a Harry Potter spell. But anyway, Nene can be very talkative. And she often follows the excitement of Vita. Nene is, she's that cliff falling sheep that my year five teacher, Mrs. Hook, told me, you know, not to be by copying, you know, all the, the naughty friends that I had. So Nene, what, what I mean by this is Nene builds off of Vita's initial excitement and carries it forward. She carries it forward because Nene, nucleus accumbens, sits closer in front of Vita, who's in the middle of the brain. So Nene sits somewhere near kind of the behind region of, of your eyes, at least relatively close to your eyes. So whereas Vita is all talk, Nene goes the extra step and converts this excitement into action because she sits closer towards the driver's seat at the front. So what do Vita and Nene get up to? Well, mate, they live the life. It's, you know, it's sex, drugs, and rock and roll is Vita and Nene's motto. They love searching. Keyword there, searching. Remember, um, 
for delicious food and, and going for beautiful walks along sunsetting horizons and things like that. And what else do they do? Well, Vita and Nene, they take note of reinforcement. So of anything that, if we say that reinforcement means anything that increases the likelihood of a behavior. In fact, Vita and Nene operate with the chemical signpost as, as the chemical signpost and the structural signpost in the brain that a behavior is likely to be sought out again in the future. So all the while, Nene and Vita are, you know, they're doped up. The dopamine's going. They literally could not be separated from dopamine because, well, they're the ones that are, that are producing it. So Vita and Nene form part of the limbic system or uh, limbic system is also called the emotional brain. So wherever they see more dope, more, more opportunities for dopamine, um, they take note of what was happening before that and they're on the lookout for those cues in the future. And here's how they get addicted. So, you know, paraphernalia... People, places, and situations, these are all possible triggers to kind of kickstart the party mood of an addiction. So turning towards kind of one of my own examples, I used to, and I'm only talking about, you know, a few months ago, enjoy having a vape. And I'd be doing so while studying because, as we've said about dopamine, there's a feeling of pursuing a goal and a feeling of energy and focus, which is also um, what what nicotine does it directly stimulates it gets vita and nene to con- to pump out more dopamine so the first few breaths kind of waved with excitement but vita would be calling a little louder to nene who would then be communicating with me to let me know that you know she can help me pick up the vape off of the table cuz you know I was busy studying so now I'm not saying that I had no control I'm trying to paint a picture of the automaticity, the the automatic kind of habitual, uh, what would you call it, habitual behavior of kind of seeking instant pleasure. So what became challenging was (laughs) if I was studying at uni and not at my desk at home, I started to notice my hand involuntarily reaching for the vape that wasn't there. So hence, the situation, studying, was associated with vaping and would trigger a reaction by Vita and Nene to kind of carry on as usual. And it became, became a habit. It became something that was automatic, like I said. So nicotine, caffeine, cocaine, and amphetamines, for example, they di- directly trigger more dopamine by Vita and Nene in particular. So if we imagine something like, and I hope this analogy carries, something like the Harlem Globetrotters, uh, sorry, the Harlem Globetrotters, say it clearly, uh, we imagine them lining up and rolling the ball from one hand down and up the arm over the shoulders and down and up the other, then flicking the ball into the air to the next member who kind of does the same, we're going to use this to serve for as an analogy for how neurons fire. Like I said, I hope this 
There's obviously a lot of um, more specific elements, but I think this will do the job. So some drugs, what they do is they block the neurons from, from being reabsorbed. This would be like one team member not passing the ball back after they were done. Other drugs stimulate the neurons to keep pumping dopamine, for example. So this would be like one team member rolling more and more basketballs and firing them off to the next guy. And then with so many in play, the receiving player finds it hard to maintain and hold on to. After time, though, of doing this, the player gets really good at managing so many tasks. The neuron gets really good at managing so much dopamine that this player then finds, he finds it boring when there's just the, you know, the normal, as they say, you know, the single ball in play. So now, not that the Harlem Globetrotters ever use a single ball, anyway. Now, this guy, this this fictional fictional, um, Harlem Globetrotter, he doesn't want to play anymore unless it's as fun as last time. So this is what happens to the brain following chronic use of some stimulants like the ones we mentioned that directly increase the secretion of dopamine. So there is one example of how Vita and Nene can can get up to mischief. But um going into the phenomenological the the experiential side a little bit more um kind of outside outside of the modern world that we live in, we, we must recognize the crucial role that Vita and Nene have played and continue to play in survival-related behaviors such as, you know, we're talking incentive motivation system again, such as finding a partner and, and with mating behavior. As a side point, though, I don't want to ha- and I don't want to hate on the modern world because it's too easily leads to kind of personal laziness like oh what's the world's ruined so what's the point but going into relationships the sexual drive component of Vita and Nene have led many particularly young males astray through pornography just as an example so <laughs> and now it sounds like I'm blaming the women in our heads on pornography I promise that that's not what I'm saying what I'm saying is, and this has actually occurred for me at, during the kind of mid-teen um, time of my life in particular, that pornographic content and the seemingly limitless extents of it can be seriously a seriously disruptive habit to fall into, especially because it is so private in nature, which is why I feel kind of compelled and, and obligated to discuss it. So I've spoken to many people of a similar age, both males and females, who have said that kind of their first exposure is typically quite confronting, but with continued use, and we spoke about this with the Harlem Globetrotters, the Vita and Nene become more and more particular and more greedy. And in my case, I experienced the point where kind of real-world intimate romantic interactions seemed kind of more like vanilla ice cream against, you know, the promise of rainbow or in more serious times, like a a salad compared to a cake, if you follow the analogy. So what I mean is that I felt hyper fixated on specific and unrealistic elements favoring kind of, you know, more of a visual medium rather than a, a richer, the richer emotional and 
the dynamic interaction between, you know, two partners. Um, and this is relationships as well as, as kind of um, the more intimate sides of things as well. I know this is a vulnerable thing to say, and I completely accept that, um, knowing, but I do that because I know that so many face or have faced this problem and knowing from my own experience that it can be unlearned. I'm cautious of, I'm cautious of where it will go with the future it, to be, to be honest with this whole robotics and things like that, because you already hear some crazy stories, but that's definitely for another time. But what I mean to say is that these things that cause instant gratification, we spoke about vaping, we spoke about pornography as well, or, but it can be anything that does not involve a more dynamic interplay of actions and consequences. Anything that, that just has that instant feel-good should be watched with a careful eye. And we know this with, uh, with desserts and, you know, uh, I mentioned cake before. It, it's, it's easy to, to just kind of get consumed it, and everybody has their different uh, mode of their susceptibility to, to particular unhealthy behaviors or unhealthy kind of substances and that includes food. But my point here is to recognize like with the Vita and, and Nene's in our minds that well, at least for me, having that kind of structure in mind of, okay, it's dopamine that's at play here and it's, it's Vita, Vita and Nene who are, who are chatting and they're speaking fairly loud to me at the moment. I wonder what it, you know, I wonder what an alternative might be like, or I wonder how this relates to a particular goal that I would like to achieve. So you're kind of making use of the system that we know exists in a direction that kind of helps you be more productive or, I mean, it depends on what you want to get out of, you could say life or, or any situation that you're in. But I find that thinking about it in those terms helps me kind of have a little bit more awareness of, of what's going on. So to wrap up, I apologize to anyone named Vita or Nene. I do not have chatting and controlling women in my mind. I'm in a richly loving relationship with my fiance. So that's, let's make that clear. But I do hope that this was interesting and useful to help you think about kind of what was going on or what goes on when you're striving for your goals or partaking in, in simple pleasures, which are still totally okay as well. I'm not saying that we completely get rid of um, cake, let's say, for example. Um, but just to kind of have them sit in in a framework that allows you to make some some more controlled decisions. So thank you and I look forward to next time where we will talk about the attachment and reward system.